following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Well, good evening, everybody. Are we uh, online? Good. All right. Welcome to those of you that are also with us on the computer. We're glad that you are here. Tonight we'll be in Matthew chapter 9. All right, so our scripture reading tonight as they make their way out is in 1 Chronicles and the 12th chapter, 1 Chronicles and chapter 12. Now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men, helpers in the war, armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left and hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow. They were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren. The chief was Ahiezer, then Joash, the sons of Shema'ah, the Gibeathite, Jeziel and Pelet, the sons of Asmaveth, Barakah and Jehu, the Anathathite, Ishemiah, the Gibeonite, a mighty man among the thirty and over the thirty, Jeremiah, Jehaziel, Jehanan, Jazabad, the Gedarathite, Eluzi, Jeremot, Beliah, Shemariah, and Shephathiah, the Harufite, Elkanah, Jeshiah, Azarel, Joazer, and Jashabim, the Korahites, and Joela and Zebediah, the sons of Jehoram, Jeroham of Gedor. Some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty men of valor, men trained for battle, who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were as swift as gazelles on the mountains. Ezer the first, Obadiah the second, Eliab the third, Mishmanah the fourth, Jeremiah the fifth, Atai the sixth, Eliel the seventh, Johanan the eighth, Elzabad the ninth, Jeremiah the tenth, and Machbani the eleventh. These were from the sons of Gad, captains of the army. The least was over a hundred and the greatest was over a thousand. These are the ones who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it had overflowed all its banks, and they put to flight all those in the valleys to the east and to the west. Then some of the sons of Benjamin and Judah came to David at the stronghold. And David went out to meet them and answered and said to them, If you have come peaceably to me to help me, my heart will be united with you. But if to betray me to my enemies, since there is no wrong in my hands, may the God of our fathers look and bring judgment. Then the Spirit came upon Amasai, chief of the captains, and he said, We are yours, O David. We are on your side, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. So David received them and made them captains of the troop. And some from Manasseh defected to David when he was going with the Philistines to battle against Saul, but they did not help them. For the lords of the Philistines sent him away by agreement, saying, He may defect to his master Saul and endanger our heads. When he went to Ziklag, those of Manasseh who defected to him were Adnah, Jazabad, Jediel, Michael, Jazabad, Elihu, and Zilatai, captains of the thousands who were from Manasseh. And they helped David against the bands of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor, and they were captains in the army. For at that time they came to David day by day to help him until it was a great army, like the army of God. Now these were the numbers of the divisions that were equipped for war and came to David at Hebron to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord." Of the sons of Judah, bearing shield and spear, 6,800 armed for war. Of the sons of Simeon, mighty men of valor, fit for war, 7,100. 
of the sons of Levi, 4,600. Jehoiada, the leader of the Aaronites, and with him, 3,700. Zadok, a young man, a valiant warrior, and from his father's house, 22 captains of the sons of Benjamin, relatives of Saul, 3,000. Until then, the greatest part of them had remained loyal to the house of Saul. Of the sons of Ephraim, 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous men throughout their father's house. Of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000, who were designated by name to come and make David king. Of the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, their chiefs were 200, and all their brethren were at their command. Of Zebulun, there were 50,000 who went out to battle, expert in war with all weapons of war, stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. Of Naphtali, 1,000 captains, and with them 37,000 with shield and spear. Of the Danites, who could keep battle formation, 28,600. Of Asher, those who could go out to war, able to keep battle formation, 40,000. Of the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh from the other side of the Jordan, 120,000 armed for battle with every kind of weapon of war. All these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest of Israel were of one mind to make David king. And they were there with David three days, eating and drinking, for their brethren had prepared for them. Moreover, those who were near to them, from as far away as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, were bringing food on donkeys and camels, on mules and oxen, provisions of flour and cakes of figs and cakes of raisins, wine and oil and oxen and sheep abundantly, for there was joy in Israel. Well, those sound like good days, don't they? Yes, yes, very good days. And the nation and uh, selecting uh, King David to be on the throne, as God had said. And again, those men were there making sure that God's will was done, and they certainly were formidable to uh, make sure that that was the case. Well, let's take a breath, turn our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, and shift our attention to what the Lord is doing here in the Gospel of Matthew. We looked at the end of chapter 9 on Wednesday night, and let me just touch on that briefly because it's interesting how it connects to the previous segments of the chapter. We see in the end of chapter 9, after the Lord does a number of miraculous healings, um, casting out demons, blind men healed, and so on, which we'll look at as time permits, uh, perhaps not this evening, but another time. Uh, Jesus calls the disciple Matthew or Levi, the tax collector. It comes to the end of the chapter, and Jesus was going about all the cities and villages preaching and teaching. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, teaching the word of God, and he was healing the people as he went. And as we said last time, he was healing them in a way that was just tremendous outstanding, uh, couldn't be equaled, uh, thousands, probably of thousands of people being healed from all kinds of maladies that they had, spiritual and physical maladies, afflictions, and he was just really doing a number on, on sickness and disease among the people in his ministry. And when he, he was going about to all these places and he saw the multitudes, and the Bible says that he was moved with compassion on them because they were distressed, they were harassed, they were dispirited, they were scattered, they were weary. They were, as the text says, like sheep without a shepherd. 
the sheep without a shepherd, gives us a clue, a solution that the Lord is looking for. When he says to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And the Lord is looking at this situation and seeing how pathetic it really is and the crowds of people that don't know where they're going. They don't know up from down. They need moral instruction. They need guidance in basic areas of life. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And so the solution is need more laborers. Now, laborers, we said, could be missionaries, but really that's not the point of the passage. That is a point that many people just draw out of it. But notice, if the problem is they're like sheep having no shepherd, then the solution is they need shepherds. They need shepherds. Missionaries can be shepherds, but pastors can be shepherds as well. God's people, whether here or overseas, or in any place, or perhaps there is no church yet, people need a shepherd, and God is concerned that we pray with the disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, to bring people into the faith and to guide them and lead them as a shepherd would his sheep. And that would include teaching for feeding. Uh, It would include guiding them. It would include guarding them. It would include uh, nurturing them. So that's the pastor's job, just like the shepherd's job is to protect and provide for the sheep, guide them to their food, and to nurture those that are injured. So the pastor does those four things for the people of God, teaches them to give them guidance. Uh, He protects them from wolves outside, wolves that rise up from within, um, guides them, gives them advice, administrates in the church, and and then also nurtures them when they're sick and hurting. And so the Lord is looking at the situation, and he's saying, look, we need shepherds. And he's gone about healing and all these things we're going to look at as we go backwards, kind of reverse and get into the beginning of the chapter. But I want you to look at 934. 934. It occurred to me as I studied this that this is quite quite a juxtaposition. The Lord is looking at this big picture problem that the world is facing, the need for shepherds, people lost and weary and harassed and misguided and scattered. And the Pharisees, all they could say is, what? He casts out demons by the power of the demons. All they can do is complain about what he's doing while he's going around helping people, helping those who are hurting, preaching the gospel to those that are lost, helping those that... Uh, are oppressed, are demon-possessed, have some physical malady, and all they can do is complain that he's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And that verse 34 foreshadows what is coming in the, the, the upcoming chapters when the Lord faces all the way down to chapter 12 with really the official rejection of the Lord's ministry in Israel. And just setting those two things side by side, it's, it's kind of like, you know, certain, certain ones perhaps in a hypothetical church will say that are concerned about the progress of holiness in the church and they're concerned about the outreach of the church and concerned about growth in the faith. And then there's somebody who's got to be complaining about the color of the carpet. How misplaced. How unfitting for the people of God to be 
stuck in little details and complaining about things. And in fact, this, I mean, this complaint is false. Oftentimes that's the case because somebody that's in a complaining attitude, that's all they can see is, is the thing that they are focused and fixed on. And it may not even be the right interpretation that they have. It may be the wrong direction they want to go. Doesn't fit the facts. Doesn't take into account all the circumstances of the situation and, and they're just missing the boat altogether. Just out of place. So we want to make sure that we're looking at things like the Lord Jesus looks at things. But let's go back to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 9, verse 1. We have quite a little section here. In The title I've given this is Jesus Forgives Sin. Jesus Forgives Sin. Let me read the first eight verses, and then we'll draw some truths out of here. It says in chapter 9, verse 1, So he got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. Okay, they had gone already in the boat, and then they were coming you know, the other direction. Traveling back and forth was fairly common in the Lord's ministry, it seems, uh, across the lake instead of walking around it. So he came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the Pharisees said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. And when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. First of all, the Lord declares forgiveness. The the fellow comes. I I haven't really focused on this in my notes, but you can imagine in your mind's eye the situation of a poor person who is unable to walk, and they're carried on a stretcher, a you know, not a, not a nice, you know, one that you see today that's, uh, they roll out of the uh, ambulance and put somebody on and, you know, it's got the reclining part of the bed thing and it's got all these gizmos on it and all these hangers and wheels and all this sort of stuff and the bottom carriage comes up and it's easy to move around and all that. They didn't have that. They probably had two sticks with some kind of stuff in between them and he was on that gurney thing, that, that, that carriage that they were carrying him on, and they brought him to the Lord on this bed, and uh, it was a pathetic situation. More than those words describe, can you imagine not being able to move yourself? I mean, that's tough to imagine, isn't it? Yeah. So they bring him, some of his friends, family members bring him, and they want, evidently, the Lord to heal this man. Primarily, it seems, his desire was to be healed, or at least the desire of his friends. You know, he might have said, oh, forget it. And they said, no, we're going to take you. We're going to take, we're going to take you on the long journey, whatever it is. We're going to carry you there, and we're going to get you before Jesus, and he can heal you. The patient and his friends also keenly understood his sinfulness it seems, and had faith to be healed of that as well. 
I want you to notice, I don't know how Jesus does this, but it's, it's evident by the actions of the people, but notice what it says. They, they brought him a paralytic. When Jesus saw their faith, when he saw their faith, now did he have x-ray vision to see inside of their brains and see, ah, there's faith right in there. I think he knew them in his omniscience, but he also saw their faith operating. There it was before him. They, they had enough faith to bring this one to Jesus. And remember he said before, Jesus was not only healing. That was not his primary ministry. He was teaching and preaching the kingdom of God. So they had heard that, and perhaps they had faith that, you know, this is the Messiah and Maybe they knew Isaiah chapter 35 that talks about the, the blind seeing and the lame leaping and the mute speaking when the Lord comes in His kingdom. And they thought that He was the one. And so they had faith. And evidently they had faith that was enough of the right sort that the Lord forgave this man's sin. Well, that's what the text says. He says, your sins are forgiven you. That's a sovereign declaration of God, isn't it? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And if God says that, who's going to take it back? I mean, if God is for us, who can be against us? If Christ died for us, what's the devil going to say? Now, I'm going to short-circuit that somehow. So the Lord says, your sins are forgiven you. And he says, be of good cheer. Wow, that's so nice. He was probably a little bit uncheerful, as you might be if you had to be carried around on a litter with four four of your friends or more having to carry you around. I've observed sometimes, perhaps you have as well, that people who are in this state, this handicapped state, are often deep thinkers. Have you observed that? Somebody that's wheelchair-bound, somebody that's bedfast, not always older people, it could be younger people. Sometimes you, you see young people who have had some tragic accident and they've been confined and limited, and they have a wisdom beyond their years. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because they have had time to think while the rest of us run around like chickens, these people, some of them, have been confined to a bed or wheelchair and they think deeply about the things in the world and have a kind of wisdom that we runners don't always match. This man may have been one of those and he may have thought about his soul a lot while he had time on his bed to think about what's going to happen to me and how am I going to survive and what about when I die and, and all of those things. And he probably had plenty of time to sit and think. He didn't have any television, no social media, you know, none of that sort of thing. Lots of time to think. In any case, the text of Scripture is telling us that Jesus dealt with his most pressing need. Most of us would think, man, if I've got a problem, I, uh, I need to, you know, a health problem, I've got to get this taken care of. Certainly people that don't know the Lord, I mean, that's why this COVID thing has gone so crazy because people are fearful of death and they want to be avoid 
the sickness or they want to be healed of it if they get it. But it's the same thing. It's been the same thing. Forget COVID. You know, forget I even said that. Go back 20, 30, 40, 50 years. People can be so focused on the health aspects that they chase down treatments to try to get better because that's the most important thing to them, isn't it? But really the most important thing is to be forgiven of sins. Sounds strange to somebody not in tune with the things of God, but let me tell you without question, no doubt about it, most certainly, most definitely, it is true that your spiritual need is more important than your physical need. Without a doubt. My friends, you if you minister at the deathbed of people, you don't even need me to tell you that. You are convinced of it already. Because their physical strength is expiring. They're unable to do anything if they're on hospice care. Everything is being taken care of for them. Their physical strength is waning. What is their most pressing need? Well, if they're a Christian, sometimes it's just assurance. It's just, you know, you're about to cross to the other side of the Jordan. And they need that encouragement and that assurance from the Word of God to comfort them and to help them. If it's somebody who doesn't know the Lord, these are difficult. The need is, and especially if they have only partial consciousness, then it's very difficult. But the need then is to preach the gospel to them and to share with them the love of God and concern about sin and eternity. Much more important. Bondage to sin is more serious than slavery. The guilt of sin is worse than paralysis. Impending eternal death is far more dire than physical injury. The most pressing need of any person that we encounter is a right relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. Nothing else by comparison matters. Physical hunger is important, but satisfying the person's spiritual starvation is more important. Might I suggest that you should tell them of their spiritual need while you feed them a sandwich? If somebody's hungry, you know, give them a sandwich and while they're chewing away, tell them the gospel. That's their most important need, the gospel of Christ. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, of course, playing their typical role, object. It would be better for them if they would just be quiet and listen for a while, wouldn't it? But they don't. They always have to put in a word. They believed that Jesus was speaking blasphemy. It says in verse 3, At once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man speaks, or this man blasphemes. That is, he slanders God. That is, he takes the place of God. And this is ultimately where they went in the trials at the end of the Lord's public ministry, at the end of his earthly life, when they basically said he makes himself out to be God. That's blasphemy, so we're going to kill him for it. So this keeps coming up over and over, even from the early year, uh, years of his ministry. He was taking a prerogative to himself that only God has, and that is to forgive sins. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 21, it adds this. It says, Who can forgive sins but God alone. Now that's true, isn't it? That's true. But they didn't 
realize that they had made a false assumption about who Jesus was. Now, they didn't say this out loud. Notice that it says, they said it within themselves. Within themselves. Just in their hearts. Of course, God does forgive sin. And really, only He can forgive it. And really, He's the issue because, first and foremost, sin is against God, isn't it? We've said that from Psalm 51 many times. But they, of course, came to the situation with the wrong assumption that Jesus was just a normal man. Had they recognized that He is the divine Son of God and the Messiah, they would not have been so quick to condemn Him in what He was saying and offering forgiveness to the man. Now, in an amazing display then of omniscience, the Lord Jesus says to them, basically, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're whispering among yourselves. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Imagine Jesus in the front of the room, the Pharisees in the back, complaining to them in themselves. For Jesus, their thoughts are like printed above their heads in the cartoon format. Like he knows them inherently, intuitively. Every one of them, he can just see. He blasphemes, he blasphemes, he blasphemes. Why is he doing this? Only God can forgive sins. He sees all that printed on their faces, basically. That's what his omniscience does. Now for us, that is a blessing that he knows our thoughts. Your inmost concerns and thoughts are already known by God. God knows your everything, reproach and shame and dishonor. He knows your prayer requests. He knows your hurts. Psalm 139.4 says, Before a word is on my mouth, you know it all together. Before it comes out of my tongue, you know the words that I'm thinking. But the Lord's all-knowing nature is not so comforting for the unbeliever. For the sinner, because the text says that Jesus knows their evil thinking that they have in their hearts. How much is hidden from God? Nothing. Hebrews 4.13 tells us that everything is open to him with whom we have to do. Let me just read it for you. Right from the text of Scripture in 4.13 of Hebrews, it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing is hidden from God. Everything, as it were, is naked and open to the eyes of him who is our judge. Now, with that in mind then, it's far better to be honest with God now, isn't it? Just be honest with him now. Fess up, seek pardon through Christ and be saved. Better that than holding on to your sin and trying to deal with God later. That would be a big mistake. These Pharisees should have fallen down and worshipped instead of complaining as they did here and at the end of the chapter in 934 that Jesus was doing this by some 
power of the devil. Notice also that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? He made a moral judgment on those thoughts. Attributing blasphemy to Jesus, that was their thought process, that is evil. That is evil. Saying that Jesus is not the divine Son of God is evil. Saying that he's just a man is evil. It's not just okay, it's not just a little mistake. Doubting that he can forgive sin is evil. That's the moral judgment that the text of Scripture makes about what the Lord is doing here. By the way, although Christians are not the ultimate or immediate cause of somebody being forgiven, we can declare that people are forgiven, can't we? Well, what does John 20 say about this matter? You might say, how can I declare somebody to be forgiven? Well, do you have the gospel or don't you? John 20 and verse 23 says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Christians carry the gospel message, which has as its central plank the forgiveness of sin in Christ. And so you have that power. It's an it's a interesting it's a thing. It's not really a power. It's a, it's a declaration that you can say when somebody confesses their sin and turns to Christ and they ask you, am I really forgiven? What can you say? You are really forgiven. You are really forgiven. You are forgiven because you have taken those sins and given them to Christ. Now, uh, it says in verse 5, it asks this question, uh, which is easier to say, you know, one or the other. And so Jesus proves that he could do the spiritually big thing, which was invisible, by doing the physically big thing, which was visible, by raising the man up to health. Now, which of these is harder to do? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven where there's no external evidence of that, or to say arise and walk where there is external evidence if somebody does obey, you know, come out of their paralysis and get up and start walking? If the evil, uh, you know, the thing that's bothering them, if the disease or whatever it is, it goes away, then it's seen. Which is harder? To do Well, I guess we would probably rightly think that offering forgiveness really is harder. But you know that both take divine power? It's not like offering forgiveness is like of something of totally different nature than healing somebody. Both take divine energy and divine power. But they're in different realms, I agree. One is in the physical realm, we could say. The other is in the spiritual realm. But it's divine power in any case. The man was made well, and he got up and he walked home. Now, that's understating the case. I mean, the people there marveled that this happened. I mean, think about it. If somebody has been bedridden, does it tell us for how long? Paralytic lying on a bed. It doesn't sound like he was there for one or two days. 
I mean, maybe he had a stroke three days ago or something, but it doesn't tell us that. Even somebody who's had a stroke a few days ago, maybe in the last couple of weeks, perhaps he's been in that case longer, do you think that modern medical technology could do what this miracle does? Okay, let's suppose there's some hypothetical situation where modern tech could look at this guy and say, you know, maybe he's lived in a third world country and they don't have proper medical care, and they could say, look, we do this surgery, we get his spine straightened out again, all of a sudden he's got motor skills now. But he doesn't have coordinated motor skills. He doesn't have strength in his limbs to be able to walk. He's going to take months, perhaps, of physical rehab to be able to walk. This is a grade A miracle right here. Okay, Not only is the fellow changed so that his problem goes away, but his muscles are strengthened, his coordination is put back into place, and he's able to walk just like that. It's hardly conceivable that something would be possible in our day and age. You know, we're so happy when somebody has a surgery and their problem is totally fixed and, you know, we kind of, you know, thank the Lord and, and amen and all that and we forget about the six to 12 weeks that they have after the surgery where they have to heal. You know, say they've had some big abdominal surgery and, you know, like, oh, you know, all the time. They can't cough or some heart surgery or something. They, it's so hard to recover from this. But we're so happy because, you know, the heart bypass has been successful and they're alive and everything's great except for, you know, the next 12 weeks, which we forgot about. This fellow didn't have six or 12 weeks. He didn't have, you know, uh, Jesus sent him home and say, you know, now, uh, see me next week. We'll do the post-op and uh, no lifting above five pounds. None of that. The Lord healed him completely. The crowds were amazed. And what did they do? It says they glorified God for what was done because God had provided such power in their midst. One translation put it this way. I like this translation. It says they were awestruck. I mean, they were, what would we say today? Give me a, give me a word. What's that? Jaw-dropping. They were gobsmacked. I don't know what the word was. Does that even fit that word? I mean, it was just unbelievable that that, that happened. And they, they, they worshiped God. They glorified God. They said, God must be here. I mean, he must be working in this Jesus. Amazing. Of course, this enraged the Pharisees even further, I'm sure, because they just couldn't take it. I mean, Jesus was taking away their following. He was, quote-unquote, showing them up. He was teaching as one with authority, the end of Matthew chapter 7. Great crowds were following him. He was healing people. They couldn't argue against what he was doing. It was so obvious. The only thing they could do, ultimately, was to get rid of him, which they went about doing very shortly, as we'll see as we get into the later chapters in Matthew. Now, the next section of the gospel... Uh, is under the heading in my Bible of Matthew the tax collector. And that's an appropriate heading, but there's more to that section than just Matthew the tax collector. And the heading that I used was that Jesus came to help sinners. Jesus came to help sinners, verses 9 through 13. It says, 
As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the, ho- at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came. So what is happening here? What is going on with Matthew? By the way, Matthew is mentioned in 10.3 in the list of disciples. You have Matthew the tax collector. Matthew, who's writing the book of Matthew, writes his own name and admits that he was a tax collector, but he's been called out of that and he's now following the Lord. History, or tradition rather, tells us that he ministered perhaps around the areas of Judea and Samaria and Galilee, just in Israel, you know, not like maybe Thomas winning, going off far to the east or whatever. So, what about this Matthew? Jesus comes along and invites him, no, actually, commands him to come and follow him, and Matthew did so. Now, the text elsewhere tells us that this Matthew evidently is also named what name? Do you remember? Remember his name? Anne has it, Levi, yes. Now, it's not clear that he is or is not a Levite, but his name was also Levi. He had a Greek name, Matthias, Matthew, and he had a Hebrew name, Levi. And so, and he was also, the text tells us elsewhere, the son of Alphaeus. But we know that he was a tax collector, and as a tax collector, he would probably be quite educated. He would at least be able to do some basic math um, and uh, record keeping. But he was despised, obviously, by the common population because he worked for Rome. He was a Jew, but he was making his living working for Rome. Poor fellow. I have to make a living. Um, and he did, but it was not a very uh, well-esteemed position. Now, what happened then is Matthew offered hospitality in his home to Jesus and to others, to the other disciples. Many observed what was happening, namely, you know, you have a tax collector now, and what does he do? He invites his friends, his co-workers, if you will, and brings them along. And other sinners, outcasts, joined them at the table in his home. Evidently, he was quite a wealthy fellow, as tax collectors might tend to be in that day. And people were looking on and saw that. Pharisees, again, put in their complaining two cents. This time Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. Not only did they think it's blasphemy for him to forgive sinners, but it's probably just about as bad to share a meal with such people. They would not dare defile themselves with such people. How, when, when, what haughtiness, what arrogance they had in their hearts. Evidently, the Pharisees did not ever eat with such people because they were above, they thought, spending time with people who needed spiritual help. Utter arrogance in their hearts. Utter arrogance. The Lord wisely responded with two points. It says in verse, uh, well, after 11, when they complained that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, it says, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he said this in rebuke, 
But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous. What he means is I did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. That's what he's doing. So first, only those people who are sick need a doctor, not those who are well. The Pharisees saw shortcomings in those that were hanging out with with Jesus at the time. So, uh, you know, they would have to agree with Jesus. I mean, these are the people that are sick, spiritually sick. They need the help. But what the Lord left unsaid was that there are no truly well people. There are no truly well people. There are people who think they're well. There are people who trust in their own righteousness. There are people even like today who, who declare that people like us are wicked because we hold to the standards of morality that God displays in the Scriptures. And they're self-righteous, they're self-assured, they're a shoe-in for heaven. That's that kind of attitude that we see right here. The Lord did not say, but it's true, that there are no truly well people. We all need spiritual doctoring that only God can provide in Christ. So the the Pharisees were not humble in seeing their need and and that they in their self-righteousness were in the exact same boat as these tax collectors and sinners. Very same kinds of things going on in their hearts as were going on in the hearts of these people. Only... The sinners and tax collectors, many of them recognized that they had a need when the Pharisees were too blind to see that need. Are we blind also, they said to Jesus? Well, yes, indeed, in effect, they were. And the second point that Jesus made is this. The Pharisees needed to go learn something. They needed to go uh, brush up on their Old Testament theology. They were being dumb about the things that they we're supposed to know. This is a real rebuke. The Lord Jesus told them they needed to figure out what God meant in Hosea 6, 6, where he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The Pharisees were consumed with the external. They were consumed with ceremonial cleanliness. But they had neither cleanliness externally or internally, ceremonially or otherwise. The Lord requires inner mercy and loving kindness and similar character traits. Of course, the Lord wants the inner traits as well as the outer manifestations of that reality. But if there's no internal reality, the external ceremonies make God sick. The internal must come first. The internal, the mercy, the loving kindness, the compassion the humility, and then the external. The Pharisees did not have any of those internal qualities. You can see Jesus, though, is full of them, full of compassion toward the lost and helpless people. He's teaching his disciples where to find those who need the gospel, whose hearts God may well open to hear and believe the gospel. He's taking them to places where there are tax collectors and sinners, not where there are a bunch of self-righteous people that think they need nothing. So by application, suppose that you're a person who recognizes you have a spiritual need. You're stuck in sin, and you know it. You realize that you're responsible for the bad desires, 
thoughts, motivations, actions, attitudes, words that come out of your heart and life, what to do about them because they separate me from God, you say to yourself. Remember this, Jesus came for spiritually sick people such as ourselves. He did not come for the elite. Who are the elite anyway? Elite? God. The elite are nothing. So don't put them up on a pedestal. Okay, They're just a little more famous than everybody else, perhaps, on the road to destruction. He did not come for the righteous, because there are none, or the wealthy, because they cannot take it with them. But he came for sinners, sick people such as yourself. Would Jesus take me? If you repent, and he will. I, I've heard, and you probably have too, you know, I, I'm, I'm too far gone. I'm too far gone. Jesus won't take me. I can't reform myself to be good enough for him to take me. <laughs> That's not how it works. Jesus saves sinners. He doesn't save righteous people because there are none. And so give yourself to him. Be like these tax collectors and sinners who have come to Matthew's feast for the Lord Jesus and recognize their need. And just ignore what the Pharisees are saying. I mean, they would say, look, you were all together born in sin. Get out. You know, you're a lost cause, worthless person. Just, just ignore that, that attitude. God doesn't operate that way at all. He takes sinners, sinners who are lost and know their need and want to repent and seek God's pardon and want to live for him. He will take them if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, I'm debating whether to continue because I've dealt with the two segments of the text. We have some more. Let me just touch on this, and then I think I'll review it again next time we're together in the next three or four verses in 14 to 17. The occasion of this segment of text now has to do with the Lord and the disciples and their practice of fasting, the practice of fasting. And there was a notable difference between John the Baptist's disciples and even the Pharisees externally and the disciples of Jesus. And they come and ask him about this. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, one note, uh, I've put in a, a footnote in my notes, but just a little footnote for you as well. When we talk about fasting, we're not talking about the kind of fasting that people talk about a lot today, which is fasting purely for health reasons. You know what I mean? You know, the eight-hour, the 16-hour fast, or fasting for one or two days or something, and it's supposed to clean out your insides and help you do your body to do different things and all that. That's a health issue totally off the table here. This is spiritual uh, fasting for a purpose that has to do with spiritual things and not with physical things. Although there can be some connection, obviously, between the two because they are both fasting. But the purposes and the ideas and the thoughts are different. These people were not fasting because, you know, their doctor told them that it's good to do a 16-hour fast or whatever. They were fasting for religious reasons. They were fasting to uh, 
show more devotion to God. They were fasting to have more time to pray. They were fasting because of sin, and they were mourning perhaps over their sin if they were fasting the correct way, the way that is prescribed in Scripture. Uh, Because again, God would not desire a fast if there's no mercy and sacrifice, uh, mercy and, and, and love and loving kindness and all of that. Sacrifice and fasting then are kind of on the same plane. You know, God doesn't care for them if they are just empty rituals. I notice, uh, too, that it's interesting that how would, how would the disciples of John know that the disciples of Jesus didn't fast? How would they know that for sure? Because how did Jesus tell his disciples to fast? He told them to fast in private. He told them to fast, not, you know, disfiguring their faces and making themselves look all miserable, you know, going around saying, oh, you know, commiserate with me because I'm fasting. No, to, to just live, to just do what they do. And so you shouldn't even be able to tell if somebody's having a short fast. Uh, maybe you can see their prayer. They're spending more time in prayer or they're more isolated from uh, their family or something because they're in mourning over some issue or whatever, but you're not going to see the fasting itself. And even then, the disciples of the Lord are taught to pray in private, not on the street corners. So there's a little bit of a misguided nature to this question. Um, You don't know, for example... Uh, as an outsider, if they're fasting or not. Or like giving or giving of alms. Remember the Lord said to do that privately? You say, I never see that person give. Well, you're not supposed to see them give. That's not your business. Your business is your business to give, but not to observe everybody else and see if they are doing, you know, being the giving police and seeing what they're doing I hope that you're not doing that. Comparing yourselves among yourselves. But it is uh, helpful to ask yourself, if I'm not giving, why am I not giving? Why am I not exercising this discipline, which is also a worship? Giving is worship. You don't withhold worship from God and, and give later or withhold worship from God altogether and not give at all. That's not appropriate. It's not what God calls us to do. But back to this issue of fasting, it's somewhat interesting. How would they know that they are fasting? And and the Lord says to this point that basically our, our new realm of faith here doesn't fit with the old. So there's some rituals, some things that are done back here, like fasting, which simply are not going to be done in the new faith, the new upgrade, if you will, or fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And he makes it very clear when he tells them, you know, look, why would you fast if you're at a wedding feast and you're there with your friend? You know, you're, you're the, the bride, if you're, you know, the gal's there and you're, you're, you're your friend, the, the young woman, is being married, and you're so happy for her, and 
Or your friend is the groom and you're standing up with the groom at this wedding and you're not going to be thinking, the last thing you're going to be thinking about is, boy, I'm, I'm breaking my diet and I got to be fasting. No, you're not thinking that because you're thinking, man, this is a celebratory occasion. The groom is here. The bride is here. They're being united in marriage. It's, it's very fitting to be happy and celebrate that and to eat a meal and share fellowship and have great joy and, and beverages and all the rest. And the Lord says, it's just not appropriate to fast while I am here. There'll be plenty of time for fasting when I go. And uh, certainly I, I would expect that events were so traumatic when the Lord was killed that his disciples didn't care to eat, perhaps for the whole two or three days that they would have not eaten. Thursday night, they had the Last Supper, if the chronology is as we understand it. Friday, they're waiting with bated breath to see what's going to happen to the Lord in the early morning. By 9 o'clock, He's hanging on the cross and they're seeing the sickening sight of the one they love dying there for their sins. And then put into a tomb before 6 o'clock in the evening. And they're wondering, what? What are we going to do now? You know? And they just, it, it, was just, it was just too much. And so they probably didn't eat a whole lot in those couple of days fasting. There'll be plenty of time for that when he leaves. But then the Lord came back. And from this, I, I extract the following philosophy for myself. We're, we don't live in, a, in, a, in an existence where we have to feel like We have to fast all the time because we live in the joyful reality that Christ is alive and that he's coming back. So we don't have to act all, you know, down at the mouth because the Lord is not here. Now, there may be occasions for fasting, and I'm not saying not to or to. I'm not specifying at all because you know what? There's no instruction in the New Testament about how often to fast, why to fast, when to fast, or anything like that. It's a private religious observance. You decide, I'm just, I'm just done eating for today. I'm, I, I need to spend time with the Lord. I, 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 I'm not hungry. I just want to devote myself to Him. Beautiful. Do that. But it's not specified that you have to do it every week or once every month or anything of that nature. You choose. You, you decide. But remember, we don't exist in a situation where we have to you know, beat ourselves up or have a day of personal atonement where if we're guilty enough, God will forgive us. That's not how forgiveness works. That's not how sin is cleansed or washed away. It's washed by the blood of Christ, the once and for all death of Christ. And so we can fast if we wish. We don't have to. Remember, we live in a time of joy. The Lord is resurrected from the dead. We know He's coming back. He's provided for us great and mighty things. And He's done for us just wonderful, wonderful spiritual things. And we're thankful for that. So, I'm going to leave that there. Basically, we'll come back and we'll look at how the two systems just don't fit together and the illustrations of of those that the Lord gives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for being able to look at the text of the Bible tonight together and to think on what the Lord is 
put here for us through the writer Matthew by the Spirit of God. And Lord, I pray you'd help us. Help us as we think about the fact that Jesus forgives sin and the whole matter of, of calling disciples to follow him and coming to heal those who are sick, not those who are well. In fact, there are none who are well. And help us to be humble and recognize that we're there in that same crowd with those tax collectors and sinners, and you've lifted us out of sin and brought us to yourself. How we thank you for that. Thank you for the Lord's table this morning that we celebrated to remember your death, to proclaim it until the Lord Jesus returns. And then this morning when we looked at the abounding grace of God, which not only teaches us to look at the consequences of sin, but also it helps us to know how to live. It teaches us how to live. It empowers us to live the Christian life so that we don't just have grace applied after the fact. We have grace applied before we come into a sinful situation and helps us avoid living uh, in the ways of the world. We thank you, Lord, that our Lord Jesus was able to heal this man, to forgive his sins, and to remind us that he's come for people like us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's go over and see if we can see the kids playing for a minute. That's always enjoyable. God bless you folks. Have a good night and a good week, I trust. Let us know if we can be of any help to you this week. Any questions, any concerns, advice, counsel, um, or just a word of uh, praise. I like to hear those as well. So, amen. Have a good night.